3, John chapter 3. I don't believe we've made it even through one sermon yet without speaking about the new creation theme that John employs all throughout his gospel. But today's text perhaps is, perhaps is the, the pinnacle of this line of thinking. We've been talking about the new birth, the, the regeneration, the, the renewal of all things. And in chapter 3, John presents the idea of being born again, but the, in this sense it's in the individual sense. The pressing theme of this new creation text is the individuality of the new birth. John spoke in cosmic terms in chapter 1, but here he speaks intimately to the one man in the night, that famous Pharisee Nicodemus. Here he gives the way of entrance into this new creation, which he calls the kingdom of God, a more familiar term. So if you've been wondering, how do I see, how do I, how do I enter this new creation that John has been talking about? How do I enter the kingdom of God and that reality that he speaks of? This is the sermon we are, where we will address that. Again, the text is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I would like to say that this will be a part, uh, part one of a two-part series. We won't get completely through this encounter with Nicodemus. We'll continue over into next week. So part one is today, and that is verse 1 through 15. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them. John writes, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without a word, that you speak to us, that though we sometimes feel like we are in the dark, we are reminded that we can always come back to what you have said, and what you said always points to your son, Jesus. He is the last word, we might say. So Lord, we pray that as we look to your word, that final word that you've spoken to us in your son, Jesus, that we would see him clearly, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might understand what Jesus means to be born again. Lord, I pray that you would uh, be upon my preaching. I pray that anything that I say that is not of you would go in one ear, right out the other. 
Lord, I pray that the, the, the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, I pray that they would be pleasing to you. O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. And amen. amen. So, the visitor in the night. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night. But before we can look too far at this passage, we need to ask, who is this man? Who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus, it says in verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So right off the bat, we see that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. But what does it mean to be a Pharisee? What does a Pharisee look like? Well, a Pharisee was actually a school of thought in Second Temple Judaism, and they were passionate about propagating the teaching of the Jews. What did the Jews believe? Well, the, the Pharisee wanted to tell you. They wanted you to learn it, and they wanted you to practice it as well. So they were all about extending Jewish practice outside the life of the temple. They wanted the lay people to take it home with them. They wanted to live. They wanted people to live like a Jew, and they wanted you to live strictly like a Jew. So they were all about installing or instilling greater piety in the lay people. Now, contrary to the Sadducees, the the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. You probably heard this Bible teacher say this before sometime in your life. How can you know who the Pharisees are? You can remember what they are because the Pharisees were sad, or the Sadducees were sad. You see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. But the Pharisees, they were different. They believed in the resurrection. And perhaps this is actually what spurred the conversation in the first place, for Nicodemus to come to Jesus. Remember, John places this right after last week's text, where Jesus says that he will destroy the temple, and in three days he'll raise it up. So maybe it was even the resurrection that is the reasoning that Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus, what do you think of the resurrection, this idea of being brought from death to life? So... He's a Pharisee, but it also says he's a ruler among the Jews. This means that he was a ruler of the Sanhedrin, probably an elder of the Sanhedrin. This is kind of the the party of the temple, and he was a ruling uh, Pharisee, and he would have been a rabbi himself. He would have been teaching other people, and yet he comes to Jesus, maybe even humbly in some ways, by calling Jesus rabbi. So rabbi to rabbi, teacher to teacher, here comes Nicodemus the Pharisee. Now you might be asking, why in the night? Why did Nicodemus come in the night? Well, this is probably similar to the kind of encounter that Jesus had with those two disciples earlier in our study in John. Remember, they came to Jesus and they said, where are you staying? As if to say, can I come and have a long, drawn out, deep conversation with you? I don't, I don't want to just have a quick conversation and ask you how you're doing. Uh, I'm, I'm okay. Okay, great. See you next week. Not that kind of thing. He wants a longer, drawn out conversation. So that's what Nicodemus was probably after. An in-depth uh, conversation about who Jesus was and who is this rabbi that's been teaching these new things. So like the two disciples, he came to see where Jesus was staying in the night. Now, some have actually looked at this and they said, well, this Pharisee came to Jesus because he was embarrassed. But we don't really have any warrant for saying this. We don't know that Nicodemus was embarrassed uh, about coming to Jesus at all. It probably was just the case that Nicodemus and Jesus both during the day were actually teaching the law. They were going about their day jobs just like you go about your job during the day. And if you're going to have a long, drawn-out conversation with someone, you probably don't want to do it over text, right? You don't, you don't want to have a quick phone call. You want to go over din- for dinner. You want to go have a drawn-out conversation together. So this is probably why Nicodemus came in the night. There's no reason to uh, think that Nicodemus was embarrassed to be with Jesus, as some people have purported. Now, what is this conversation about? Well, in verse 2, Nicodemus says this. He opens the conversation saying, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless, he's, or unless God is with him. Now, notice this isn't a question. This is just a proposition. 
He's just saying a statement that, that is probably beaming with curiosity and maybe even a little bit of skepticism. He's just making a statement. These things that you're doing, people don't normally do this, right? I'm not sure what to think about this, Jesus. So he's just kind of laying it there, putting it in Jesus' lap. What are you going to do with this, Jesus? How, how can you explain these things that have been going on? Also, he says, we, there, when he's talking about seeing these things, we probably means that he's speaking on behalf of the Sanhedrin. Maybe even a commissioner. Maybe the Pharisees have sent uh, this Pharisee to go inquire of Jesus. Who is this person? Remember, he's a ruler of the Jews, and he speaks, and he says, we. He didn't say, I have seen you do these things. He says, we. So perhaps like many of the encounters with Jesus, Nicodemus didn't even really know what to ask. Maybe he didn't even know what to say. He just started the conversation uh, by saying, we've seen this. What are you going to do with it, Jesus? Just kind of laying it there and having Jesus speak to it. Maybe Jesus can sort this out. So then the topic of the night comes. Jesus actually isn't that concerned with his proposition. Jesus almost kind of shifts and just says, now i got something else we're going to talk about here, something more pressing. So he comes and says this to Nicodemus. It just cuts to the matter. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, why is he saying this? Isn't that funny? In verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that your teacher come from God. No one can see or no one can do these things unless, he's, uh, unless God is with him. And then Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to answer that question or speak to it at all. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he cuts straight to the heart of the matter, which is the necessity of being born again. The necessity of regeneration. You've probably heard this word before. This, it's more of a doctrinal word, but I want by the end of this sermon for you to understand what regeneration is. What does it mean to be born again or regenerated? We talk about it all the time in evangelicalism. You've got to be a born again Christian. What does that mean? Well, Nicodemus plays along and kind of draws it out of Jesus. Um, obviously, Nicodemus doesn't take Jesus' statement literally. Some people said, look at that dumb Pharisee. He thinks that you can go back in your mother's womb and be born again. I don't think that he literally believed that. I think he's just kind of playing along like you would in a conversation where if someone were to say, you must be born again, you'd say, and how exactly do you think you could do that? You can't be born again. You can't go into your mother again. I think he's just kind of playing along. So... If you haven't noticed yet, John really emphasizes, the, the author of this book, who is writing this, witnessing to Jesus, John really emphasizes the fact that Jesus rarely speaks literally. He speaks in parables a lot. It's cryptic. And you have to really have eyes to see, to see what's going on. So his words are often symbolic. They're, they're pointing to something else. They're sacramental. Right? They're, they're pointing to something deeper. It's a sign and a seal going into something deeper than what we see on the surface. So these are physical z- examples that he often gives. He says, birth, you understand birth. That's a natural thing. That's an earthly thing. But it points to a metaphysical reality. We're talking about something deeper, a spiritual reality. So Jesus reiterates a statement and adjusts it the second time in verse 5. And this time he says, you must be born of water and spirit. He doesn't say you must be born again. He says you must be born of water and spirit. Now, he's saying the same thing, but he's saying it in a different way. One one meaning with two ways of saying it. Now, these phrases and many others in the New Testament are are where they are formulating our understanding of the doctrine of regeneration. What is regeneration? Let me give you some other biblical examples of where we get this idea of being born again or regenerated. 
1 Peter 1.3 says this. You don't, have, you don't have to turn here. You can just listen, but listen carefully. 1 Peter 1.3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So there's Peter's take on being born again. Let's listen to James. James 1.18 says this. In the exercise of his will, this is God, in his will, he brought us forth, think of birth, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. All right, what does Paul have to say about this? Paul writes Titus in Titus 3, 5, and he says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You can kind of hear it, can't you? Water and spirit. But the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what does Peter say? We, we've, we've read at the beginning of what Peter says to, be, to see what it means to be born again. What does he say later in that chapter? In 1 Peter 1, 23, he says this. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this final verse in 1 Peter uh, 1 in, informs us most when it comes to this understanding of what it means to be born by water and spirit. Now listen, the, the water carries here a lot of biblical imagery, such as baptism. I think it does point to baptism, but mainly we should see water as the seminal action of of God. This was a common euphemism in rabbinic sources. Peter contrasts being born again with perishable seed with imperishable seed. So I don't mean to be crass, but that's just what he's speaking of here. He's talking about a, a godly seed and an ungodly seed, a worldly seed and a spiritual seed. So think of it in those kind of terms. So therefore to be born again, to be born of water and spirit means that through the Father's will, we are remade, reborn, renewed, through or by the Spirit through Christ. I know that's kind of technical language. Let me just unpack it a little bit. It's a, it's a full Trinitarian action. We believe in the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they're all active. It's not just one of them up in the sky. He's just sitting up there and let everything happen by the Holy Spirit. No, they're all working together in this. Now, the Father, He wills it, right? He's caused it, as the, the terminology has been used in other scriptures. So the Father wills it. The Son brings it forth. And the Spirit enacts it. We might say animates it. Now, the, the way that I think is helpful to remember this, and lots of preachers do this because it helps people to, to remember things um, after they walk out that door. You can remember these by these three C's. The Father causes it. The Son creates it or commands it. And the Spirit constitutes it. All right? So these, this full, the full Godhead is active in this act of being born again. Now, you might be asking at this point, what part does man play in this? What does man do in being born again? This brings us to our next point, which is the necessity of regeneration. You must be born again. Now, the point that Jesus is making is that man, and I catch this and I do mean this very literally, the point that Jesus is making is that man plays no part in this action. Hear me clearly. If, if he is going to see and enter the kingdom of God, there's nothing that he can do about that to awaken him. Now, we're going to see this more clearly in the text. I want you to realize that if that's offensive to you, it's, it's been offensive to someone else. Nicodemus, I think he was uh, offended when he heard this. It catches him off guard. He's like, what? What do you mean I have to be born again? And I can't do anything about that. 
right? What, what is going on here? So it rubs us the wrong way when someone says that you had no part in coming to spiritual life. Why? Because we're very individualistic people, right? We want to have a part of something. We want it to be our merit. We want it to be our works. We want it to be our righteousness. We want a little bit of salvation, even if it's just 1%. We are a people that are willing to say things like, if God saves us 99% of the way, but that 1%. We, we did that 1%. Maybe that's our faith. Maybe there's lots of different ways that kind of people try to say, well, no, I did something too. So like Nicodemus, we would like to think that we at least prepared our hearts to believe, right? At least we can take credit for that. He worked righteousness like, or we worked righteousness like humility. We readied ourselves to believe. But what does Titus 3.5 says? Titus 3.5, I just read that a minute ago. It says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Where are you getting the righteousness from? That comes from God. So even God prepares us. Even God gets us ready to be born again. He is the one that does it from finish to start. That action of God making us alive. You can't make yourself alive. So do you see the problem? We can't do this on our own. Romans 3 says it this way. If we think that we do have some kind of righteousness that we could offer, Romans really clears this up. And this is actually Paul quoting the Psalms. And he says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have all together become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That's pretty grim about humanity, isn't it? That's a, that's a stark statement. It's not just we need a little bit of help. We are in absolute need. We are sinners that are dead. We need help. So you see the problem. You need something that you can't provide. That's salvation. Now, do you know why Jesus uses this analogy here? Why he uses birth? Because it can't be argued with. Think about the logic of this analogy. Did you birth yourself physically? Did you come into this world uh, by your own doing? No, no one would say that. that. That would be absurd. Did you prepare yourself in any way to be born? You had nothing to do with it. No one ever asked you if you wanted to be born, did they? No, no, one, no one consulted us about that. No one in, their, in this room will argue that. Now, why would we start grasping for credit when it comes to salvation and being born again in the spiritual sense? Where would we get the idea that we could spiritually birth ourselves? That's absurd. No man is his own father or mother. Right? Think about that. You came from something that had nothing to do with you. You were conceived by an imperishable seed. Not a perishable seed. This is the contrast that Jesus makes here. We are here by zero choice of our own physically and even zero choice of our own uh, spiritually. Now, after that, we make lots of choices. But the reality of you being born again... That's a work of God. Salvation is of the Lord, not of man. He is the one that does this acting on our behalf. Now, this is why Jesus buckles down. Let's read verse 6 and 8, or 6 through 8. Jesus says this That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Wow. Flesh begets flesh, is what it says. Spirit begets spirit. If we're going to be brought alive to spiritual realities, we cannot birth ourselves into it. We are in complete dependence upon another. 
We need an imperishable seed to conceive us and bring life to us. So he then likens the spirit's action to the wind. Why the wind? Well, the word spirit actually is the same as wind in Greek, pneuma. It's the same word. He uses it twice, but when you're reading it, you can catch that he's using the different uses of it to say wind and spirit. Now, this is probably pulling from the original creation narrative where the spirit hovered over the waters in creation. Right? The spirit is that seminal force which regenerates or brings life to the created order. And this is why baptism is so closely related in biblical imagery to the spirit. It's the sign and seal of our new birth. Right? The spirit hovers over our chaos and brings order from disorder. Right? He reorders it. That's what that baptism means. You die and something else new and alive comes up. We are passive in baptism. That's why you can't baptize yourself. You ever thought about that? You, you can't do that. In baptism, someone else has to baptize you. And it's God who acts in baptism, not us. God speaks the word and faith comes by what? Hearing. Not by doing. Not by working. Faith comes by hearing. It's a reception of something. Now, have you ever wondered why you can't be baptized? Why you can't baptize yourself? Because it's pointed, pointing to a spiritual reality that you also can't do yourself. That's why we do it this way. This is why he uses the, the wind analogy. Wind cannot be mastered. Who can, who can grab the wind? Who can, who can master the wind? This is why Ecclesiastes over and over says that life is like chasing the wind. Right? Vanity of vanities. Life is kind of like that. Try chasing the wind. Try to, try to catch it. You're not ever going to catch it. You're not ever going to control it. You can't control the wind. And that's why Jesus says... That the spirit is like that. Good luck controlling the spirit. Good luck controlling who God is. You can't control the spirit any more than you can control the wind. So Jesus stresses something that we cannot do. He says you must, that there's the necessity, be, that's a state of being, born again. In other words, you must be something that you can't do. You have no control over it. Now how can this be? How can this be? Verse 9 says this, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? The same question you're probably wondering right now. How in the world does this make sense? Isn't this confusing? How, how can this be the reality that is going on in all of religion? How can this Pharisee be being told that he needs to be born again? This religious teacher being told, no, 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 you, you need something that you can't offer. It's kind of insulting insulting to him. So now, now let me just say that if you're asking these same questions as Nicodemus, you're on the right track. Why? Because Jesus has Nicodemus right where he wants him. And Jesus has you right where he wants you. If you're asking these kind of questions, you're actually letting it ruminate the same way that Nicodemus would have had it ruminating. These questions rolling around in yourself saying, how does this make sense? So what Jesus is doing is he's shaking faith in ourselves. If your faith is anywhere other than me, I want it out of you. We have a tendency to make idols in our hearts. And we can even idolize ourselves. We can idolize our own will. We can idolize all kinds of things. But any time that our, our faith and worship is in anything other than himself, God says, you've got to get rid of it. No, we can't have even that. Not even that 1%. You won't take that 1% of credit. You're not going to take my honor. I am the one that saves. Salvation is of the Lord. So any faith that resides in the human will rather than God causing our salvation, he wants to rattle that faith. 
Now, this is why he says, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, let's bring this up to it, up to date a bit. Some of you are sitting here saying, I'm not sure this makes sense to me, right? Now, now think of it this way. Are you a Sunday school teacher that's been teaching in the church all your life, and you don't understand what it means to be born again, right? Something like that. We need to think about these things. I've sat in church pews all my life, and you're telling me I need to be born again? Yes, that's what Jesus says. You need something that you can't offer on your own. You can't just be born into this Christian situation and think that everything's going to be fine. You need to have something that you can't offer on your own, namely the new birth. So Jesus is questioning his foundation. Does this supposed rabbi really understand God and the necessity of grace and mercy on sinners? Or has he been teaching maybe just kind of a mix of grace and works, right? Has he been teaching that salvation is by the grace of God and the faith of man? Where they're kind of pairing these two things together. We need God's grace, but we also need man's faith. Man offers something in this too. Or is the faith the work of God too, lest he boast? Now think about this. Remember what Ephesians says, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God being rich in mercy, there's the grace, because of his great love for us, which he loved us, even when we were dead... In our trespasses, how do dead people become alive? They don't resurrect themselves. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Catch this. For grace you've been saved through faith. Oh, shoo. Good. We got our faith, right? No. And this is not your own doing. Wow. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, your salvation is a complete gift. You didn't get yourself ready. You didn't prepare yourself. You didn't do anything. You were dead, and God brought you alive. And once you were brought alive, you were commissioned on his behalf to go and work. You are supposed to work then. It's not that you have no no part to play in this. You just have no part in your salvation, right? You do have a work to do. You are to be a workman. That's what you were created for. But you were created to be a workman. You understand the difference? You didn't create yourself. We aren't creating ourselves, and God comes along and says, who, he'll make a good workman. No, he creates the workman. He's the builder. He's the one that does all of it. So if you get anything technical uh, from, from this sermon, any technical formula of this doctrine of regeneration from this sermon, I want you to get this. Regeneration, the new birth, being born again, precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. You can't even ex- exercise your faith and work out your salvation without having the new birth first. You don't work yourself to it. You don't prepare yourself to get there. Regeneration precedes faith. And so it's what makes you alive, and then it's what animates you, and then you carry out the good works. But before that, you didn't get yourself ready, and you couldn't. So Jesus makes it very, very clear. He makes this we-you distinction in verses 11 through 12. He wants to, to, to clear this up in this Pharisee's mind by making this we-you distinction. Verse 11 says this. says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Now here Jesus is talking a little bit uh, corporately, isn't he? He's, he's talking with just two people here, and yet he says we. So he says, we see these things, we do these things, but you do not receive our testimony. 
I have, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So he gives this we-you distinction to divide himself and his followers from the Sanhedrin. Right? Jesus is saying, I'm actually teaching something a little bit different. You guys see it this way, and I see it this way. And Nicodemus came on behalf of their way of understanding, and Jesus, through this passage, is clearly showing the dividing line. What's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisaical way of thinking? Well, it's the new birth, and that's that line that draws right straight between the two. There's a big difference in that understanding of salvation, and it's the new birth. Now, the religion of the Pharisees was one that placed their faith in tradition of the elders and the law of God, which isn't a bad thing, except for they were placing their faith all there. It's not that tradition of the elders and the law of God is bad. It's that that's where their faith was at. They knew that they were sinners, but through their striving to keep the law, that was kind of their faith, uh, and following the tradition, they would have been accepted by grace, right? So the Jews were just kind of going along with the, with, the, with the law, and they presumed their salvation upon Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. We come from that seed. Think about that. that. We come from that water. We come from that pool. That's where we are from. We are from the children, or we are the children of Abraham. We're Jews, and salvation is from the Jews. But Jesus wants to say and make it very, very clear, yes, salvation is from the Jews, but salvation is not of the Jews. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord did come from the Jews, right? He, he grew up out of those. But that offspring that was promised, that seed that was promised all the way back in Genesis, or all the way back there again, that seed between the woman and the serpent, that seed was Jesus. Jesus was that promised offspring. He was that promised seed. And the problem was is that these Jews, these Pharisees, were saying, no, we're from this perishable seed. We're from Abraham. But Jesus wants to say, no, 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 Abraham died, right? Moses died. You have to root yourself in a faith that is deeper than that. So following the practices of the Jews became the main focus to their way of understanding. They looked pretty on, the, on paper, but everyone could see that they were dead on the inside. Right? It looked great until you actually press them and start talking about the hearts, and then they're pretty yucky, right? You don't want to be a Pharisee when it comes to the heart. Now, they needed what Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 36, what we just confessed earlier. Jesus says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Think baptism. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from your idols I will cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. So the cause of your walking, the cause of your doing, is the seminal work of God. It's that work of God in you to be careful to obey the rules. Can you do open heart surgery on yourself? I don't recommend it. Right? It's, it's not a good idea. Just like you can't birth yourself, just can't, like you can't bring yourself back from the dead, you can't give yourself open heart surgery. Right? Jesus wants you to get that you can't save yourself. It's very, very clear. It just rubs us the wrong way. Right? It's, it's very clear in, in, in Scripture. So the we you distinction, therefore, is not that Jesus is starting some new religion. He's just calling these Pharisees to live up to what they already profess to believe. You have the Scriptures, he says. They're back there. I'm not saying anything new. Jesus says, I've told you earthly things, and you're still in disbelief. Right? I've given you the physical examples, and yet you still don't understand. 
You come here saying things like I, I, I do only or you come here saying the things I do only God can do. And you're a skeptic. Right. Jesus says, you see me do it, but you don't believe it. So what do we have to talk about? You don't like my answers that I'm giving to you. So what do you want me to say? Right. This is Jesus. Jesus is just pushing. Me. He's saying, I'm not going to tell you what you want me to say. I'm going to say what you need to say. You came here saying, I can't explain these things. And Jesus says, you know what? You just need to be born again. You're missing it. You don't see it, Nicodemus. You need to be confronted with the reality that you're missing something and you need something that you don't have. And it might be something that some of you this morning have have not seen until this morning. You're kind of going along through the motions of tradition and religion and growing up in church and being a Christian, sitting in the pews. But have you been born again? Have you come to that reality to realize that you can't just kind of coast? You can't live off the faith of your parents. You can't presume on a perishable seed the imperishable blessing of being born again. That comes from the Lord. So he then says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What does that mean? Why is he kind of shifting here? Now, the Son of Man, as many of you probably know, is a messianic figure that Daniel prophesied would come in the last days. Now, Nicodemus knew this much, but we're not talking about eschatology, the the study of last things. Or are we? Maybe Jesus is trying to say something here. Maybe he's trying to say that there's something going on with the Son of Man. Right? They're waiting for the Son of Man. Daniel prophesied in the last days the Son of Man, this messianic figure will come. And Jesus says that the Son of Man has descended. Oh, so he's here. You mean the Son of Man. That, that, that messianic figure is here. So Jesus points Nicodemus to the sign. What is the sign? Well, Paul reminds us that Jews seek signs, then the Greeks, they seek wisdom, but we do what? We preach Christ and him crucified. We're not necessarily going to give you what you want because it's not always going to satisfy you. What you're just wanting is to be wowed. Show me something cool. But what Paul says is, you know what? I'm just going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you the gospel. I'm going to give you the Christ. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus preaches the foolishness of preaching. Right? That's what Paul says it is. It's foolish to the world. They don't get it. But Jesus gives them this sign. And what he does is he points to the cross. That hasn't happened yet, but he's kind of figuratively pointing it's coming. He, he points to an Old Testament passage to actually point towards a future coming. He says to, to look and see this thing that happened in the Old Testament. Now, remember John's gospel has seven signs all pointing to the eighth main sign, which is the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the big sign. This is the distinctive sign that signals this new day, which is the new creation or the kingdom of God, as we said. Seeing the kingdom of God. And when you see that sign, you will know that the last days are at hand. It's essentially what Jesus is saying. He says, when the Son of Man comes, you're going to see this kind of thing. So, what does verse 14 say? Verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he says, No one has ascended into heaven, no one's went up, except he who descended, someone who's come down from heaven, the Son of Man. And when you see the Son of Man lifted up, that's going to be your sign. Right? So he's giving this, this kind of an even really interpretation. Now, why does John shift to the serpent analogy for Christ? Well, because Christ is the one who we are identified with in baptism. Now, bear with me in a second. I'll, I'll unpack that. Baptism represents our regeneration or new birth in Christ. We already said this, where the Holy Spirit hovers over us and kind of recreates us anew through the waters. 
Now, this action of the Spirit is no more our work than it is the work in our natural birth. Right? You didn't do it. It's, it's, a, it's a, the work of the Spirit, the, the work of another, we might say. Now, we're born again because of the action of Christ. Now, likewise, the death of Christ happened not because of anything that he did. You, you catch that. The death of Christ happened not because of anything he did. Did Christ kill himself? He did not kill himself. Other people killed him. Christ did not earn or deserve or appropriate himself to the death that he took on the cross. Did he deserve what he got? No. Did he prepare himself? Did he sin to really, really get that, that cross and deserve it? He got what had, he had coming to him. No. He became identified with the serpent, with the sinner, with those who inspire death when he was crucified. Think about that. He was identified with the death of another. Now remember, it was the serpent's biting of the people of God in the Old Testament, and Moses held up the brazen serpent that was on the pole. Now think about that. He's being identified with the serpent, with the the sinner. So gazing upon the cursed serpent miraculously brought healing in the Old Testament. Do you remember that story where Moses is out in the wilderness? They're grumbling, they're fussing, they're they're backbiting, they're doing all this kind of stuff, and God says, you need some snakes. So he sends some snakes out there to wake them up to the reality that they are a grumpy people, that they're not being... They're not caring about what God is actually providing for them and doing. And so they get this curse of the snakes that bite them, and they're going to die. It's a death sentence when they're bit by the snakes. But then God gives Moses this sign. He says, put the serpent on a pole. And anyone who looks at that serpent will be healed. So this is what John, or this is what Jesus is appealing to here. So they looked at the one upon the pole who was identifying with the thing that they were trying to rid themselves of, and it brought life to them. They were bit by the snakes, and they were healed by looking upon the snake on the pole. Think about that. So John is bringing a resolution to Nicodemus's problem. Nicodemus is scratching his head wondering, how can he be born again if only the Spirit is capable of doing this action? If he can't offer anything or prepare himself for it, then how does one get it? Now, Jesus' resolution is simple. Look and believe. Just look at it, and you will be healed. You can't do anything to get ready for it. You couldn't even ask for the blessing for it to come to you. But what you can do is look at it and accept it. You receive it. And by doing that, you know that there's already something working inside of you. Right? That, that, is, that reception is the realization that you have been born again. When you receive the sign, when you receive the healing, that's how you know I've been born again. Otherwise, you probably haven't been. If you can't receive the sign, if you can't receive the healing, and you can't receive what God is giving, then there's probably something missing. There's, there's something loose. You need something, and it might be that you need to be born again. And when you see this offer and realize it, it's pure grace. Don't think for a moment because you see it, oh, wow, I did something great. God must love me because I did this. No, no, no. You did nothing. You, like the Israelites, have come under God's curse. They grumbled, you grumbled, they distrusted, you distrusting, and God sent serpents to bite them and show them their utter dependence on God. And he might be showing you by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you need fixed. You need healed. So once bitten, there was no escape. They couldn't heal themselves. Death was inevitably coming, and their eyes were immediately open to the reality of sin and death. So also, if you see your sin this morning and you realize that you can't bring spiritual life to yourself, you must be in the same predicament. You need healed. You need help. So how will you escape the impending death? The answer, look to the cross. 
The cross of Jesus is the answer to that question. How am I going to be saved? How can I see the kingdom of God? How can I be born again? And Jesus' only answer is the cross. That's his only answer. And there's no better answer either. There's nothing better that you can give in, in, in response to that. You can't say, well, I need you to start doing these ten things. Because you're going to fail. You can't do it. You can't live up to it. The law isn't the answer. The gospel is the answer. That's the difference of the law-gospel distinction. So many people get it really mixed up. They kind of try to give this halfway between the two. They want the gospel, but you also, if you're going to be accepted, you've got to do those things too. Now, you should obey, but guess what? It's God that causes us to obey. Right? You have to have the gospel first, and you can't even get the gospel unless you've been born again. You have to be born again, brought from death to life. So the cross is where God sent his son to take the curse for us. It says, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the great exchange? Jesus got what he didn't have coming for him. You got what you didn't have coming for you. And it's exchanged on the cross. That's where that, those two things crossed. And you got something that you didn't deserve. And so did Jesus. And he did it for you in love. It's amazing. That, that is what grace is. It is truly amazing. It makes no sense. You can't get yourself ready for it. But you just receive it. You look at it and you say, oh my goodness. That, that's what worship really is. It's not coming here and trying to earn your way in acceptance to God. It's looking at the grace of what he's already done and saying, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it. I'm here only by the grace of God. I wasn't awesome enough to bring myself to church today. I didn't get myself ready at all. I'm just here and I'm sitting and I'm all. I'm in all at his presence. That's what worship is about. That's what the gospel is truly about. So when you see your sin, then you look across the, uh, at the cross, you will be saved. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. And the disciples then say, who can be saved? How, how can anyone be saved? And this is the same question that Nicodemus is asking. And Jesus' resolution is the same. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Church, that's what you need to hear this morning. You need to hear that you can't save yourself. If you tried to save yourself, it's about as easy as sticking a camel through the eye of a needle. It's as easy as bringing yourself from, from non-existence to birth, from death to life, from, from to, to, to baptizing yourself. You can't do it. All these things are saying you can't do it. And if you think that you can do it, you're still missing the point. So if you see this, if you see this reality, just receive it. That's, that's all that you really can do is live into it, lean into it. And when you see that, you realize that the, the wind of grace is already in your sails, right? You can't control it, can you? But w when you start to move, you realize, oh, wow, 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 that's grace. And that's not me. I didn't move this boat. But that grace is moving you. It's propelling you and you can't control it. All you can do is say, let's go. Let's sail on. Let's worship Jesus. Let's glorify his name and keep saying over and over and over, I didn't do it. Jesus did something that I couldn't have done, and I couldn't get myself ready for it. Now, there's going to be some people that say, but I still don't see it. And we're going to address that next week. This is where Jesus goes next. And the amazing thing that he says next week, I'll just give you a sneak peek. He says, for, so he's continuing his argument, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.